He is risen. One might wonder uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, why, why are we in the book of Ezekiel? Uh, if, you, if you don't know much about that book, it was written approximately 500 years or so uh, before Christ's birth. So we are talking centuries and centuries before what we are celebrating today, as Reggie just told us, uh, the most important event in human history. Uh, even atheists, uh, atheist historians would say Jesus Christ is the most important historical figure in the West. Any reputable historian would tell you Jesus existed. Now they'll debate over whether or not he was God, obviously. Uh, but there can be no denying that Christ, the, the Christian religion had a unique impact upon the world as they followed after Christ. And as we talk about the resurrection of our Lord... Uh, sometimes there's an artificial wedge uh, driven between the cross and the resurrection. Sometimes we, we view these things as apart from one another. Now they're distinct, they're distinct acts that Christ does, but they are inseparable. They go together. Christ died for the sins of his people. But as the New Testament tells us again and again, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then his death was worthless. We, were, we are to be pitied among all the greatest fools who have ever existed if Jesus did not bodily come back to life. For if he just died upon that cross as a common criminal, then there is nothing remarkable about his death at all. But on the third day, he rose again. So it is not too much to say that the resurrection is really at the heart of the Christian religion. And of course, the resurrection necessitates the cross. The church rightly makes a, a big deal about Christ rising from the dead. The people of God, before the coming of Christ, before his resurrection, they would gather together on Saturdays. On Saturdays, they would worship the Lord in observance for how the Lord created. In six days, he created, and on the seventh day, he rested. We now call today, our, in our day, we call the Saturday-Sunday combination the weekend we are celebrating our weekend. You work five days, always looking forward to those weekend days off. But that hides an important truth, that Sunday is actually, even still on our calendars, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. The Jews worshipped on Saturday because God created over the first six days and on the seventh day He rested. And the church shifted their worship to Sunday because it was the first day of a new creative week. That Christ rose again on the first day of the week, signaling something new has happened. Some new creation has broken into this world. And so, for 2,000 years now, the Church of Christ has worshipped on the first day of the week, every Sunday, declaring that Christ has risen from the dead. And most importantly, on Easter Sunday. So today, we're going to take a look at an early picture of the resurrection. This again is given five centuries before Christ rose from the dead. And as we walk throughout this passage, you're going to see that the Gospels will pick up on this story here, this vision given to the prophet Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones. And it will pick it up and say, this is being fulfilled in Christ. And I ended up picking this for our Easter passage because we've been walking through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, uh, all is vanity. Life under the sun is not as we like it. In other words, uh, life 
under the sun can be a lot like walking through a valley of dry bones. Things don't go the way we want them to go. People die young. And what we get in Ezekiel would probably be, if it was put into movie format here, chapter 37, probably PG-13 at least, maybe rated R. This is a very creepy vision. He's plopped into this valley where there's just piles and piles of bone, and then all these bones come back together, and they're reanimated. It's almost like we're watching a zombie movie or something like that. And I want to say these kind of dark images are given to us because life is sometimes that dark. As a pastor, uh, I've seen such darkness. I've seen the destruction that sin brings. I've seen the death it brings to families and relationships and to souls. And it is into that darkness that we get this vision. And it is into that darkness that Christ comes into the world as the light of God. And this is why we celebrate. So today we're going to walk through this vision given to Ezekiel. We're going to see what it has to say about Israel's problems back then and how Christ brings true fulfillment. So if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 1 and 2 and then 11 again. In here we get the problem described for us. What is the problem that Ezekiel is dealing with? The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Verse 11 explains what this means. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So the valley of dry bones is representative of the spiritual and even physical reality of Israel at this point of time. They say, we are without hope. We are utterly cut off. Our bones are so dead that there is no flesh left upon them at all. In other words, they're pretty much like fossils you dig up out of the ground. They are so decayed, there is nothing left. In other words, this is a hopeless situation. And the background of this prophet, Ezekiel, is he is a Jew who is in exile in the nation of Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, who has taken over now the southern kingdom of Israel. The temple has been destroyed earlier in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10. He sees a vision where God's Spirit leaves the temple in Jerusalem. God is not being defeated by the enemies of his people, but he is willingly letting this happen, bringing this judgment upon the people. And so Babylon has raised itself up as the new superpower in the region. And they are indeed God's instrument of judgment upon his hard-hearted people. One commentator, he explains it this way. He said, Ezekiel lived during a time of international upheaval. The Assyrian Empire that once conquered this entire region and had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel was crumbling under the blows of a resurgent Babylon. So the time that Ezekiel lives in is Assyria, the great, uh, terrible nation that took over the northern kingdom, is now crumbling. And in its place is this greater power of Babylon, which has now come in and taken over the southern kingdom. And so Ezekiel lives in a time of international upheaval. Perhaps you can feel a twinge of that today. That you live in a time of international upheaval. There's a lot of uncertainty going on in the world at that point. 
wars and rumors of wars. And in this context, God gives Ezekiel a vision. And again, it is a rather creepy vision. He's brought to a valley. We're not sure where. And all he sees is bones stacked upon one another. And these bones are completely dry. They are so decayed and even eaten by the carrion fowl that there is nothing left but the bones. And this is important for us to note because the Jews and the Christians after them, unlike most pagan nations, would bury their dead. They would bury their dead. Most pagan nations would burn their dead. The Christians were all, and the Jews were always different. They would put their dead in tombs and they would bury them. And here we have countless numbers of Jewish people in the vision here with their remains just laying there, uncared for, rotting and decaying. Judging by the context, I think it's safe to say that what we have here is a picture of the people of God having been conquered in a battle. That the forces of Israel were overthrown by the forces of Babylon and they're just left there to rot. And so the picture is that of a total and a final defeat. That of death where there is no hope whatsoever. That's what verse 11 tells us. And throughout Scripture, this is the picture that is given to you and me time and time again of what it means to be a sinner separated from God. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that before being saved by grace, we were dead, spiritually dead. In other words, that valley of dry bones is every person when they are not in a right relationship with God. Sin always brings with it death. The Scriptures warn us again and again that if you play with sin, it will kill you. And it will kill your relationships and it will kill your families. And there are countless stories that you could tell and that you've seen in your own life where that is true. The Puritans would tell us again and again, you need to be killing sin or it will kill you. For we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And why the Bible picks up that imagery is what can a dead man do to become undead? Can a dead man make himself come back to life? Can a dead man say, hey, if I just get strong enough, I can live again? The picture of death is to teach us, as we've seen again and again as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, that we need someone greater than us. Someone more than us. And so this picture in Ezekiel 37 is very important, and I think it's actually rather depressing. It's there as a warning to us. This is the weight of our sin. This is the cost of your sin and my sin. What, what hope is there in such a valley? I think it's important that we take a step back here and remind ourselves, when we talk like this in the world, people think we're weird. And they're probably right. But Christianity believes and has puts forward that we live in a moral universe. That there are universal standards of right and wrong. And those universal standards do not come from us. They come from God. And if we live in a universe that is marked by a universal morality, then there is judgment for our sin, for our crimes, even among God's people. And so God's people here are stuck in despair, death, and judgment. And so this leads to a question. Verses 3-6. through 
God has a question for Ezekiel. He says, and he said to me, that is God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God has a way of bringing his people to the utter brink. He does this again and again throughout Scripture, where darkness descends, where the situation seems hopeless. And then he asks the question, can these bones live? We see it again and again throughout Scripture. God promises the very old and decrepit Abraham and Sarah a son. And Sarah laughs. That's not going to happen. That's impossible. God leads the nation of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea where the strongest military force on the world is descending upon them in chariots. And it appears they will be overthrown by Egypt. And God crushes his enemies. Elisha is surrounded by the forces of God's enemies. But then it becomes apparent that God's army is actually surrounding them. Daniel refused to bend the knee to worship in Babylon, an idol, so he's thrown into a lion's den where he should be eaten. And he's not. Is this not why we celebrate Easter? The Son of God hung upon a tree. His enemies mocked him. They said, why don't you just bring yourself down from that tree? You're the Son of God, aren't you? Then we'll believe in you. The very sun in the sky went dark, and all the land was covered in a physical, in a spiritual darkness. And God the Son cried out and gave up His Spirit. And His disciples ran and hid and locked the door for days. And then on the third day, He rose again. This is God's method. He brings us to the brink where all seems hopeless, where human power will not accomplish anything, and then he does something. And so he asks Ezekiel, hey, look at these bones. You see how utterly dead those bones are? Hey, Ezekiel, do you think something could happen to those bones? you think they could live again? And of course the answer is, if it's you and me in that valley, no, they can't, but Ezekiel's intelligent. He knows God. He's been with God for years. So he just defers the question, right? He just punts a really political answer. Oh, Lord God, you know. You know if they can live. I'm not touching that one. It's just another time where God's people seem to be surrounded by death. It is one thing to believe in the power of God in the theoretical. It is one thing to say all things are possible with God. It's another thing to say that God is all-powerful. And it's a completely different thing to see it. It's a completely different thing when everything doesn't make sense, there is no hope, and to still believe. And we should make a note here. Though this is God's normal method of operation, it's still not normal. The reason these events in Scripture are recorded are not because miracles happen all the time. It's because they don't happen all the time. Even the disciples knew that when Jesus was dead, they thought that was it. 
that's the end of it. It was a good run we had, but it's over. Scripture records these miracles because from time to time, God intervenes and displays His power. And thus God gives instructions to Ezekiel. He says, preach to these dead bones. Preach to them. Tell them to live. And God promises that He will put flesh back upon them and that they will breathe life yet again. I mean, God might as well have told Ezekiel to preach to a stone wall. Just preach to that wall. See if it comes alive. And I'm afraid that you and I, we often have so many gimmicks. Gimmicks that we try to reassemble dead bones, as it were. To go anywhere else besides the power of God to fix our problems. I remember in a ministry class in seminary, one of my last classes, um, ministry classes are always the worst. <laughs> um, we had this ongoing discussion about some issue. I don't remember what the issue was, but, but one woman uh, looked at me and she said, I wouldn't just throw God's word at that situation. And, and I get what she was getting at. A lot of people just do these drive-bys. I'm going to quote some text to you out of, out of context, and then that's it, and we're just going to leave. I get it. That's, that's ministry malpractice. But I looked back at her and I said, you got something better? Do you have something better than the word of the Lord? Do you have something more powerful than that? She didn't like that. <laughs> I have a way with people, if you can't tell. But do we not do that often? I fear that unbelief can can smuggle itself in while we say we believe God's word is God's word. We believe it is sufficient. We believe it is powerful. And then we get this problem in our life and we go anywhere else. We look for some new word, some new revelation, some new knowledge, some new wisdom that will overcome our problems. I've sat in counseling rooms with people and said, God's word is really clear here. This is what you need to do. And they go, I don't want to do it. And their life falls apart. We do that. I guarantee you, every one of us do that. I was talking with a seminary friend of mine. And he said his pastor has taken to dealing with marriage issues by saying, go, go home and read Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 and just do that for two weeks and see how your marriage goes. Because we often don't. If your marriage is falling apart, chances are you're not doing what the Bible says to do in Ephesians 4 and 5. Just try it for a little bit. Maybe God knows what he's talking about. And I said to him, yeah, that makes sense. That is something we need to watch in ourselves. Our culture tells us again and again, if you really love me, then you will just affirm my choices. And you will not just throw Bible verses at me. And sure, affirmation in the proper context and acceptance is good. But if you live in a moral universe, there is right and wrong. And if you recognize that you are a sinner, then you realize that sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. And I need correction. And there's no better place to go than God's Word. And so God says to Ezekiel, Speak my words. Prophesy over these bones and see what will happen. Now speaking is an important, part, or important trend throughout the entire Bible. In the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, 
God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He spoke the universe into existence. By the power of his voice, out of nothing came everything. In John 1, the Apostle John takes us back and tells us that the very word of God himself was there at creation, and this word of God was incarnated and lived among us. Who is Jesus Christ? This is why every faithful church puts a premium on God's word, on it being preached, on it being obeyed and followed. I want you to think about this just for a moment. How utterly arrogant would I have to be to come up here if I didn't have God's word and to tell you how to live? I'm nobody. Levi is nobody. I have no inherent wisdom in myself that I have the right to go and tell anybody else what's wrong with their life and how they should live. Preachers who get up and only tell their own stories and anecdotes, they seem humble, but they're filled with pride. I have no authority of my own to tell you how to live, let alone how to get eternal life. God's Word does. And so churches that desire to be faithful put a premium on the Word of God preached. That people would have soft hearts, have open ears, and who would repent and believe. And so God charges Ezekiel to preach and prophesy over these bones that they may live. And you know what happens? They come to life. But they don't come to life how you would expect them to come to life. There's a two-stage fulfillment of this. Look again at verses 7 through 10. Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So the creepy factor just ratcheted up like ten. And again, Hollywood here, I don't think Hollywood could, even with all their special effects, could give an accurate picture of what just happened here. All these bones scattered around the valley floor are now all of a sudden reassembling before the very eyes of the prophet. But notice that once they are all brought back together, they're not yet alive. They're little more than wax statues of people. There they are, bodies, the flesh, the hearts, they have the organs, they have the minds, or the brains, and they have no life. And so God says, prophesy again and tell the breath to enter them. And it does. Again and again, Throughout Scripture, God gives a prophecy and then He fulfills it in stages. He does it in steps, often how we would not expect it. And so we see that we say, on the one hand, as Christians, that if you have believed in Christ, you are saved today and you will be saved on the final day. That you are justified and you are going through the process of sanctification. That you are born again and yet when you see Christ, you will be like Him and glorified and born again finally. And here in Ezekiel, we have this this two-step picture here, I believe, pictures the two steps of Israel's return from exile. 
They are in exile in a foreign land. And other theologians like Peter Gentry have noted this, that when Israel was exiled, there were really two parts of that exile. There's the physical part, removed from the land, and the spiritual part, that God had removed himself from the people. And so the Old Testament ends with Israel being back in the land. They even rebuild the temple, and the people gather around the temple in the book of Haggai, and they weep. They weep because the glory of that temple is nothing compared to the old glory of the temple. Because God is not there. The physical exile of Israel had ended, but the spiritual exile had not. They needed more than just a return to the land. They needed God to come to them. And so the Old Testament ends with this anticipation that even though we're in the land, we need the Messiah to come. We need God to dwell with us again. We are still, in some way, in exile body had been reconfigured physically, but there was no spirit yet. And so they waited. And the imagery here I find really striking. The word breath in the Old Testament and New can be used interchangeably with wind and with spirit. And those three are always going, to be going together when we're talking about spiritual things. And so God says, Command the breath, command the spirit to go back into them. And there's this allusion back to Genesis chapter 2. God formed the man out of the dirt of the ground and it was God himself who breathed life into man. That is where man came from. And so you have that imagery here. And then we have the fulfillment of this. In verses 11 through 14. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And so there are really two pro promises given here to the people. First, I'm going to bring you back to your land. If you remember, they're already back in their land when Jesus arrives. But then he also promises that he will give them a new spirit and a new life. This is building off of Ezekiel 36, where God promises the sending of his spirit. And he will then open their graves, and resurrect the people of Israel. And so Israel goes into the land, they rebuild the temple, but they are still ruled by foreign powers. They are occupied by the pagans. And Jesus shows up at the proper time to bring about the fullness of this vision. And John the Baptist announces the coming of this Christ, and he says, this Christ who's coming, he will baptize you with the Spirit. Pointing back, to Ezekiel. And so Christ comes, full of the Spirit. He walks around Israel for three years doing his ministry. He mends bones. He forgives sins. And he even goes so far as opening some of the graves of the Israelites and bringing them back to life. He teaches the people. And he speaks in such a way as, if you know your Old Testament, you know what he's really saying. Think of John chapter 3. John 3.16. You all know it. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, all before that is this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Not only a Pharisee, but he is considered the teacher of Israel. If you wanted an answer to a question, Nicodemus was the guy you wrote to. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that he cannot enter the new kingdom by virtue of his physical birth. Being a son of Abraham is not enough, he says. Being a son of Abraham is like those lifeless, reconstituted bodies in Ezekiel 37. He says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how do you do that? Do I go back inside my mother's womb? No, that's ridiculous. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus says there that the spirit or the wind or the breath will blow upon you. And it will blow upon you by the will of God and God alone. And where the spirit blows, new life comes and bodies are reanimated. Jesus later in the Gospel of John goes to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And he tells Mary and Martha that within him is the power over death, resurrection. And he commands that grave to be opened, and everyone says, don't open that grave, it's going to stink really bad. And they open the grave, and Jesus tells Lazarus to come out. And he comes out. And all of this is but an appetizer to the main course. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to enter the valley of dry bones and to satisfy the wrath of God through dying. And he lays in the ground for three days and on Sunday morning he bursts forth in victory. And what is going on there? There's this little known passage. Right? There's a little known passage in Matthew 27 that speaks of the death of Christ and his resurrection. And this is what it says. And it's unbelievable if you don't read Ezekiel 37. It says that after the temple veil was torn in two, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jesus' resurrection literally led to the tombs of Israel being opened and people coming out of the tombs prophesying that this is the Lord. Ezekiel 37 says, I will open your graves and you will come out and you will know that I am the Lord. It is like God saying, remember Ezekiel 37? Remember what I told you I was going to do? Well, Jesus is the one to do that. It gets even, it gets even more overlaid 500 years later. After his resurrection, Jesus encounters his disciples in John, verse, or John 20, 19 through 22. And this is what happens. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. On the first day of the week, the resurrected Lord appeared to his disciples and he breathed new life into them and gave them the Spirit. Again, hearkening back to the very creation of mankind in Genesis 2. Here is the new man being created by the breath of the risen Lord. New 
life. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we celebrate Easter. That is why we gather together on Sunday mornings, because God gives new life through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not despair, even in the midst of a world that can seem like the bones are just piling up. Therefore, when asked, can these bones live, we say, yes, they can. And if you look at your bulletin here, look at the back of it. We have a list of dead individuals. We have a list of those who will raise again, be raised again, by the power of Christ. We have flowers here remembering and commemorating their lives in hope of the resurrection. I read a book once that talked about why it was churches used to have uh, graveyards in their lawns. It's something I never thought about. I always thought it was a little creepy that you would have a church and then there's this there's cemetery. There's all these gravestones. And the author pointed out that the reason they did that was because of the resurrection. And that every day, the church would walk by their church members knowing who are buried in the ground, knowing that they would all rise again together in that graveyard. So churches would bury their own members next to each other in hope of the resurrection. And again, all this can sound rather crazy. And it is crazy if there is no God. If God did not create, if the God of Scripture does not exist, then all of this is pure nonsense. But if there is a God, and there is, and he's the God of Scripture, as we believe, then these bones can live. And that is the point of Easter. The resurrection of Christ is his victory, and it is the victory of his people. And so they are charged to go into the world as a great army, as Ezekiel says, declaring that victory and waiting for the coming of the kingdom. There is no situation beyond the power of the gospel in this world. The only thing that prevents it is our own pride, our own hard hearts, and our stuffed ears. The message of Easter is Christ has risen and Christ has ascended on high to the right hand of the Father and Christ is coming back. And until that day, the message goes out to us, repent and believe, be born again and live. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of Easter. We thank you that life has overcome death in the death of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would give us that kind of surety, that kind of faith and hope that Jesus Christ was dead, but he now lives, and that his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of his own people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day, that you would come, and that your kingdom would come in fullness to this world. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.